If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. We will be in a few different places this morning, so keep your copy of God's Word uh, on your lap. Typically, what we do um, here at the Parks Church, if you're new, is we preach through books of the Bible. This is where we spend about 95% of our time. We are making our way through Hebrews, which we'll do again. We'll pick back up in Hebrews chapter 8 uh, in a couple weeks. But we are in our whole life discipleship series that we do every January where we just stop down and uh, we ask the Lord to remind us, uh, to convict us, to, to move in our hearts again uh, as a church around the vision for our life and the vision for our community that he has set before us uh, in his word. And, and we, we ask the Holy Spirit before beginning this series, Lord, what, what are the areas and the aspects you want us to particularly cover um, each and every year? And, and, and typically each year there's something new that he's pushing us or drawing us into or, or away from. <laughs> and so this year has been uh, no different. And uh, so last week uh, was, was week two, obviously, and I talked about the invitation of Jesus, something that, that Jake introduced in week one of Whole Life Discipleship. But last week, talking about the invitation, not, not just what it is, but what kind of invitation does Jesus extend to his disciples? And we looked at two particular areas, um, uh, two particular scenes, really, where Jesus calls uh, his disciples, uh, a group of men, and, the, and then Levi, the tax collector, to himself. And we looked around those, those scenes and, and came to this conclusion that when Jesus calls someone to follow him, it is a very disruptive invitation to our lives. Right? The, the most radical thing, honestly, the most radical thing in those two scenes, and I hope you picked this up if you were with us last week, the most radical thing in those two scenes is not necessarily that they left everything and followed Jesus. In fact, that was, that was an appropriate response for when a first century rabbi called people to follow him like Jesus would have done in, in that scene. What was absolutely uh, radical was, were the things that Jesus was doing, essentially just setting the trajectory for his ministry with these men. How he absolutely disrupted their expectations, right? He disrupted a lot of things, and we'll go through the journey. Like, we could pick a lot of things that he disrupted, but just in those things, he disrupted their expectations, right? Wait, my, 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 my experiential expectation was this. But Jesus comes in and wrecks that. Wait a minute. He, he came in and he, he, he disrupted Peter's shame. Do you remember that? Like this beautiful disruption. He d- disrupted religious expectations. He disrupted all these things. Well, this is, this is what we see throughout the Gospels when Jesus invites us. And this is what we also see in our lives. If we are faithful to whole life discipleship, we will see the invitation as one of a beautiful disruption. And I, I just so appreciate um, even the feedback from last week. That this is a community of people. That this is a church. And, and if you're new peering in, this is a great time to join us. But, but by and large, this is a community of people who want to know what Jesus says about following him. We want to know, right? We're hungry to know what the word of God says, as hard as it may be, right? As disruptive as it may be, as much as it may interfere with our, our pretty little lives. Above all that, what we want to know is, Jesus, what do you want? What honors you, right? Now, now let's, let, I hope the amens keep coming once we talk about what the next two weeks are going to be. Um, and I would argue that these next two weeks, as we've walked with people as pastors and elders, and probably as you have walked with people in this journey of discipleship, these are two reoccurring themes. But not only are they just reoccurring, they are two of the most powerful um, forces, if you will, that are forming our lives. You're being formed 
all the time. I'm being formed all the time. We could say it. I'm being discipled all the time by something or someone or a group of people. But these two things are very powerful, and they have been for, for quite a long time, but particularly and uniquely in our culture, in our day and age, these two things. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look into God's word around two particular topics. Today is the area of money. And next week, around our bodies and sexuality. Okay, so we're just going to tell you what they are, all right? And then we'll get back into Hebrews uh, that, 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 that following week. But we want to talk, where, where'd the amens go? All right, where'd the amens go? Let, let's, let's look at what God's word says, right? This is what I love about this community. And here, typically, now money in church, I talk about church, typically, you know, like, it's this uh, stereotypical, oh, but again, in our faith family, in the Parks Church, I'm going to speak to our, our church, we, we, we don't have that shared attitude, by and large, right? Some of you do, and maybe we'll get to the heart of that. But by and large, we're like, yeah, no, like we want to know. We, we acknowledge, yes, that is a powerful, formative area in our lives and in the culture that we swim in. Jesus, we want to know what you say about it. Amen. So let's find out, right? Luke 16, beginning in verse 10. One who is faithful in a, in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, right? So just pause right there. Unrighteous wealth. So that means also that there is a righteous wealth, okay? Which we'll, we'll look at in 1 Timothy 6 later. Who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here's the key line, very famous line, Jesus' most known words on money. You cannot serve God and money. Wiggle room? I think not, right? And last week in ending my talk, I end with this idea of it being a disruptive invitation because uh, of how it disrupts this idea of syncretism. For those of you that weren't here or you've slept since then, this idea of syncretism is essentially this false belief that you can merge a belief system, right? Uh, Another lowercase g with the gospel or with worshiping the true God, right? Surely we can blend those two together. We can sync them up. And Jesus uses the example of putting new wine in old wineskins or a, a, a new patch on an old garment. And he goes, you can't do it. As Sam just talked about, this is a different way. This is a new way. And there are two ways that, this, that, that we have laid before us. And Jesus says in this particular passage, something that he uh, does not say of anything else in all of the Gospels. He does not use this kind of uh, explicit language about anything else. He says, you cannot serve two masters. And the two masters he puts before us and before the disciples, both here in Luke 16 and also same talk or same sermon in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, same same talk. He says, you cannot serve two masters. And those two masters would be this. You can't serve God and money. So somebody shared this with me a a little while ago, but uh, a guy by the name of Andy Crouch, great author and speaker, Christ follower. 
was um, doing a talk at a, at a conference, and uh, it, was, it was around this topic, but he asked the question around Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God in money. He asked this question, why not? Jesus doesn't use this language to say, you can't serve God in Caesar. You can't serve God in your wife. He doesn't use the language. He doesn't put anything else in there. He puts money in there specifically. So the question we want to ask this morning up front is why not? Now, of course, we wouldn't, you wouldn't serve uh, Caesar as you would serve God. Of course, God's not saying that, right? The way we serve God is reserved for God alone. But he specifically says these two things. Why? Why can we not serve God and money? And Andy lays out what I think is a beautiful description of what the power, the unique and distinct power of money is. And this is why Jesus would choose to key in on these two specific things. And we all need to have ears to hear. Because listen, some of you are going, well, this is good because I'm not wealthy. Kyle, get him. Lie. To be going, this is good. I'm a teenager and I work a 14, you know, 14 hour, dollar hour. Could you, can you imagine those days? My first job, I was making 418 an hour. Okay. Um, no, this is for you. Student, teenager, kid, if you're in here. This is for all, all of us. And money is a unique power and distinct power from everything else. What is money? Well, if you remember what you learned in basic economics, right? Money is simply a medium of exchange, a unit of account and a store of value. It's a power. Money is this, has this ability to get things done in our world that it is distinct. The ability to get what you want, the ability to get things done without having other people even wanting it to get done. That's the power of money. This is a unique and distinct form of power. And he points to three things distinctly about money. I want you to hear these things. And, and just don't, don't think that this is academic. This will all tie into where we're going. He points to three distinct things about money that make it a unique power. He says, first is that it's fungible. What a fun word. Fungible. What does that mean? Well, it means that it can be money can be exchanged for other things. So this is one of the most obvious things about money is that, that it has very little use all by itself. But you and I can turn it into really whatever we want. This is not true of most forms of power that we think. Even Caesar, right? His power is not necessarily fungible. It would never be described as that. He can exercise his power in that office and in that land, right? He's not the emperor of China. He can't make decisions for them. Money is different. It can be exchanged for things. The next thing he says, it's not just fungible, it's countable, right? You know exactly how much of it you have or don't have. It's countable. You, you know when you get more of it. You know when you lose it. This is also rare in the world of power. Power typically is something really difficult to measure. Except with money. Right? Even if you are a leader of a business or you're, you're a CEO. Do you have power? Absolutely you have power. How much power? Well, probably depends on the day, right? Well, it depends on this or it depends on that. Money, 
you can know exactly how much power you have. You can look at a statement. You can look at an account. And then maybe the most powerful thing about money is this, Andy says, is that it's storable. It's storable power, meaning you can save it for later. You see, with most kinds of power, they have to be exercised at the moment you have it because you may not have it for later or it may not be given to you except in that moment. Think about even me as a speaker on the stage, as a preacher. I have some level and extent of power that I've been, I've been afforded, right, by the church or by the elders to communicate God's word. I can't take this power that I have in the moment and go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to store it up. And use it tomorrow. I haven't been given that right. I haven't been given that ability. However, with money, here's what we can do. We can store it up and execute it or use it at the moment we want. We can save it for our choosing. And I'll quote Andy on this. He says, all of these things add up to a power that is not dependent There is no dependence in the power of money in the way there is in most other forms of power, even political and military power. If you have enough money, the honest truth is you can get whatever done you want without anyone really having to know or care or even validate who you are. Because money talks without you having to be a person. It's an impersonal power. That is the distinct and unique nature of money and its power. That is why Jesus would say, listen, you cannot serve God and money. He knew the distinct and unique nature of money. And I love that Andy, and even describing that, he he used two words that are key. Two words that will show you you're on a different path or a different way. He says that this kind of power is not dependent and is impersonal. You see, that's not the way of Jesus. As a whole life disciple, as people pursuing Jesus, independence, right? And something impersonal is the way of the world. The way of Jesus is one that is very personal and dependent. Opposite. But yet money has this power and this alert. Kyle, are, are you really talking about just this basic unit? This thing that you said in of itself doesn't have that much power. Well, here's where we need to dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus, the word Jesus actually uses both in Luke 16 and in Matthew chapter 6 for money. Because he doesn't use the word money. And how many of you in your translations, I'm just wondering, you have a different word there. Anybody? Wealth? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Somebody said it. Mammon. Mammon is is the Greek word that the translators were using. Now, here's the interesting thing about mammon, and here's where this is going to get real interesting for us. The word mammon simply, if you just looked it up, means wealth or riches or money. But if you trace it all the way back, and in some of your translations, you will notice even the word money is the, has a capital M on it. Now, in our ESV and mine, it doesn't have a capital M. For some of you that have the translation with the word mammon in it, it will have a capital M on it. Now, when do you capitalize a word, right? When it's a proper noun, right? When it's a name. 
One commentator puts this, says this about the word mammon. The early church concluded that mammon was not just an idea or a principle, but the name of a being in service of the enemy of all that is good, the opponent of all God's works in the world that we sometimes call Satan or the devil. Mammon is this demonic force at work in history to arrange and distort human affairs in a particular direction. That's mammon. This force, this spirit that is trying to distract and distort the way of Jesus. Discipleship, formation, this way of man is trying to get you off of this path and onto a different path. One that is independent and one that is impersonal. That's the spirit of mammon. Jesus says you cannot serve God, the one true God, and the God of mammon. This was an Aramaic word, probably alluding to the Syrian God of riches. So potentially what we have here is Jesus talking to an audience that when he says mammon using a capital M, they would have thought about the Syrian God of wealth and riches and materialism. That was a powerful force. That was a powerful spirit at work in his day and in his age. Let me tell you, the spirit of mammon is alive and well today, right? The spirit of mammon is alive and well in Kyle's heart today. In Jesus' very strong, disruptive words to me and to you and to us as a community is this. You can't serve two masters. There's not a place. You can't serve God and you can't serve mammon. Mammon is the spirit of abundance without dependence. What he calls in Luke 16, unrighteous wealth. Wealth that is not surrendered and submitted to God. Now hear me, mammon is not about an amount. Mammon is about an attitude toward what you have. You see, the spirit or attitude of mammon is this, that we don't need God if we have money. We don't need God if we have money. You say, Kyle, I would never say that. And you're wise not to say that. But do you live like that? Maybe functionally, do you live like that? How about mentally, do you live like that? Well, if I had, if I had that paycheck, if I had that amount of countable, storable power, I wouldn't have to worry about X. I could do X. Douglas Jones, when writing about mammon, says this. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God. That God even has a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Did you hear that? Jesus identified mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. Why are we talking about this in January as whole life disciples? Because if that's true, and I think it's true based from Matthew 6 and Luke 16, that mammon is the sole and primary competitor to the glory of God in our lives and the formation that God wants us on and in, in our lives, then we had better talk about it, right? 
We had better unpack it. We had better just bring it out into the light and go, listen, these, this, this God, this idol is alive and well. This idol has its claws in our hearts and our different, if our different areas of, of church and ministry in so many ways. So let's call it, let's look at it. He didn't divide the world into left or right, liberal versus conservative or the envious versus the entrepreneur or Christian versus Muslim. Jesus didn't make mammon just a side temptation for a few like we do. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. Mammon through multiple generations has woven itself in different ways and mediums into our lives and the stories we are trying to live out. To say the life that we are searching for, the good life, if you will is found in consuming more, having more, doing more, apart from God. If we are going to be serious about whole life discipleship at the Parks Church, in Collin County, in McKinney, Texas, we have to recognize and acknowledge that mammon is one of the primary threats against God in our hearts and our lives. Why? Because mammon sets itself up as a God and promises to meet your needs. The needs, let me be very straight with you, the needs, meet the needs that only God can meet. Why is mammon so deadly? Because ultimately it leads us away from God. Mammon leads us away from God. I love that uh, Douglas Jones, he says, there's a way of mammon and a way of Jesus. Our whole saying around whole life discipleship is this, is that we desire as a community to be whole life disciples, being transformed by the way of Jesus. But let me tell you, there is a way that is alive and well inside and outside the church, and that is the way of mammon. Why is it so deadly? Because that way takes you and I away from God. It gives us the promise of independence and freedom, but it actually enslaves us. You see, the way of Jesus in this disruptive invitation actually is the way to freedom. It's beautiful because it's actually where we find security and where we find joy and where we find life. That's why I'm convinced that this church is like, no, we're hungry to know. We want to know the way of life. Okay, do you really want to know the way of life? Even with the Jesus stuff, do you really want to know? Here's what it looks like. It looks like you laying down your life and taking up your cross. It looks like you looking mammon in the eye and going, I am not going to serve you as enticing as it is, as alluring as it is, as, as even justifiable as it is. And go, no, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go to the way that leads me to God, not away from him. This is why the prosperity gospel is so false and so damaging. It is a mammon message, right? That if you just do this and, and, and God will then bless you, God will do this. If you do this, then God will do this. What? That's anti-gospel first, but, but just think about it, folks. So if I do this for God or I give this amount to God, then God will do this back to me, typically in financial prosperity. So if I do this for God, God will then give me mammon? 
Seems counter what his word just says, doesn't it? God will give me mammon? No, God's going, I want to purge mammon from you so that you get all of me. Here's what the gospel is, that Jesus freely gives himself to us. And then the journey of our lives is to get more and more of him. Less and less of ourselves, less and less of of things and stuff that we find ourselves so tethered to. No, we want more of him. Our abundance, we just sang it. Our wealth is in the what? Cross. But the allure is mammon. No, it's in things. It's in security. It's in comfort. And those things typically are provided for when we have that storable, stackable income, right? Or the right amount of funds for it. Why is mammon so deadly? Primarily because it leads us away from God. Jesus is trying to create in us, in a people, a people who are dependent wholly on him and nothing else. It's deadly also because it's built on pride. It's built on pride. There's this constant refrain in scripture in the Old Testament particularly, where God will pour out his blessing on a people. And what is it met with? It's met with pride. It's met with boasting. Deuteronomy 8, look at this, 17 and 18. See if this isn't where we live. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this Wealth. How'd you get it? I worked hard. I turned now. Now here, some of you are going. Wait a minute, Kyle. You talking about you? You want everybody to just be lazy? Not have a job? No, 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 no. Read Second Thessalonians. Okay, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's, but that's a different sermon for another day. And I don't think many of you are wrestling with that. But I think most of us are wrestling with this. I did it. The accumulation, the wealth, the means that I have. Guess how it came? Hard work, ingenuity, and my intellect, baby. Oh, my. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Who gave you the power? Yeah, that's right. Who are you dependent on to wake up and give you breath in your lungs to go on and execute faithfully what he's called you to do? He did. He does every single day. And who is the one who gives you everything? He does. You are a steward, not an owner of anything. So what you've been entrusted with, you say, well, Kyle, I just have this. You've been entrusted with that. So well, Kyle, I've got this. You've been entrusted with that. You didn't earn that. You didn't gain that. You were given that by the sovereign God of the universe to steward it for his glory. Here is the way of mammon. I built it. It is mine. I'll choose what to do with it in my own strength. That's the way of mammon. That's not the way of Jesus. Read James 4, 6 or 1 Peter 5, 5 to see how God treats the proud. I'll just tell you. Those two verses say this, God opposes the proud. If there's one thing I don't, if there's one person I don't want to be opposed by, it's God. But he says he gives grace to the humble. Those who would come and go, everything I have. 
whether in these seemingly worldly small or large, it's all his. It's all been given by him to be used for him, for his glory. Why else is mammon so deadly? Because it leads us away from God. It's built. Its foundation is pride. And here's maybe one of the most powerful and profound. Because it leads us away from God, it destroys compassion in our hearts. The God of mammon destroys compassion in our hearts. 1 John 3.16 says this, that how, how we know what love, what compassion looks like. By this we know love, we know compassion. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That he laid down his life for us. That's what you give from. That's what you steward from, that he laid down his life for you. And what's the reciprocating response? That we ought to lay down our lives for others. You see, what the idol of mammon does in our life, the spirit of mammon, is that it reduces our horizon of concern to typically a singular person. You was well, so, it? No, no, no. My, your family. Okay, I'll go that far. You see, but what the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ does is it knocks down our man-made horizon of care to say, listen, I have been given everything in Christ. My compassion flows to each and every person. Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord God with your whole heart, that you would understand this. And then he says, the second is exactly like it. Love your neighbor. That what mammon does is it blinds us to the cares and concerns and compassion for one another of loving our neighbor. Now, hear me. I don't think the solution is some form of Marxism or anything like that. I think that the solution is the church of Jesus Christ being the church of Jesus Christ in a powerful way with the Lord's resources he has entrusted us, deployed in compassion and grace and mercy to all. That's what I think the solution is. Tim Keller, um, in a talk on money, this has been labeled financial promiscuity, and I love it. Um, he didn't come up with that term. Someone else did. But he says this about the early church. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture Around it. In this way, the pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Like, do we individually and corporately stand? in a stark contrast to culture and the way that we handle the financial resources we have collectively and individually. We should. And listen, I, I want to be an encouragement to this body. We have, in many ways, is this community of faith. We have done things that even other churches are like, what now, Kyle? That, and they'll, they'll use the word, the Bible word, right? Is that wise? Is that good financial stewardship? Right? To start a clinic, a free clinic. Listen, it is wise when Jesus says, go and do. 
It is wise when the Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us. But listen, you had better be led by the Holy Spirit. Not just making your best guesses and your best attempts. That could be called foolishness. But we want to be a people who are so saturated and submitted to the Holy Spirit to say, wherever you call us, because we are on this different way, not the way of mammon, because we are on this different way, we want to obey whatever the cost, whatever the amount, whatever it looks like, however the world peers in and says, man, that kind of looks, I'm not sure about that. We want to obey Jesus above all else. And that's how we combat mammon. That's how we dethrone and resist mammon in our lives individually and corporately. We must first cultivate a deep sense of gratitude and commitment for what God has given us. How do I dethrone mammon from my heart? How do I resist? How do I walk in the language that we use a lot here? How do I walk in resistance to that pull of mammon that is in all of our hearts? It's not my heart. Yes, it is. How do we walk in resistance to that? We cultivate a deep sense of commitment, uh, contentment, and gratitude for what we have in Christ. I'm not going to re-sing the songs that we just sang, but those were reminders of what you have in Christ. I challenge you this week, go through the scriptures with your family and the places where it says, in Christ, you. In Christ, you have this. Or da-da-da-da-da, in Christ. See how many you can come up with this week. I challenge you, right? Let's have a little competition, all right? No prize for the winner, right, mammon? No prize for the winner, okay? But I challenge you, go through the scriptures, find those places, and then press them into your hearts, right? We may just circle this document up and just go, listen, every day we need to read this and look at it and find out what we have in Christ. You know, the foundation is this. Hebrews 13, we'll get there in a few months. But Hebrews 13, 5, the last chapter in Hebrews, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the foundation. Jesus, right? Our Lord and Savior, God, has says this to you. Take it to the bank. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. You have everything you need in me. That's the confidence. What do I have in Christ? Everything I need. Now here's what I have to do. I have to press that into my heart daily because where does my flesh pull me? Oh, I know that. But I need this. I need that. Second is we need to cultivate sacrificial generosity in our lives, individually and corporately, right? I don't, honestly, in this room, I don't think I'm saying anything new to this group. And that's what's a little scary, is that we have the head knowledge. We have the understanding that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and mammon. We, we can't serve those two things. Now, here's the challenging part. The praxis, putting the theology we know and understand into actual practice in our lives. And that's what this point is meant to drive home. That we have to cultivate sacrificial generosity that flows from us. This is where what I talked about in the first uh, part of the sermon, 1 Timothy 6, 
17 and 18. This is written from Paul, who's in prison, to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, a financial hub, right, to people who are wealthy. And this describes not unrighteous wealth, but how you would have righteous wealth. Look at it. 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's one I just did some homework for you. They are, they, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What are we to do with our riches? What are we to do with our abundance and all of those things? We are to do good works for the glory of God and the good of others. That's how we steward. And he says, listen, you need to remind them. You need to be discipling them. You need to be constantly going, listen, we know the talents of mammon can sink deep into our hearts. So we have to have this constant reminder. It's not yours. It's been given to you. You're a steward. You see, generosity in the New Testament is three things that I see. It's strategic, it's sacrificial, and it's systematic. It's not mindless, it's not sporadic, it's not spontaneous, even though there are times where God calls us to give spontaneously, but those are rare moments. I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, if, if all of your giving is uh, spontaneous, here's what he has found, is that you spontaneously keep more. That's what spontaneity gives you in giving. Another assignment for us this week practically is to sit down with our spouses and to evaluate this point, or maybe it's in your gospel community, or maybe it's with somebody you trust, to say, are we really being sacrificially generous with the resources God has entrusted to us? We wrestle through this as a community of elders and a community of leaders, even within this corporate body. Are we being sacrificially generous? Are there other ways in which God is calling us to give? Are there other places he's calling us to give to? Right? Listen, giving to is not our primary motivator. We give from first. We give from what we have been given in Christ first. And then, hear me, we will begin to see generosity not as a burden, but as a real opportunity to experience the freedom of man from mammon in our lives. The generosity for us should become a habit and a beautiful discipline. I love what Kent Hughes says. He says, every time I give, I declare money does not control me. Like, I want to I, I, I declare that. Anybody else? That mammon does not control me. Then give sacrificially and generously. Listen, in your life, and, and I, I realize there are different socioeconomic levels in here, and there always will be. But in your peer group, is there a sacrificial distinction in your life? Right? Where your friends who are in that same group, your community, you're asking, what has happened to you? What's happened in your heart? Right? Imagine if in every socioeconomic sphere here, right? And all the different ones that, 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 that would be true of the Parks Church. If there was a distinction of sacrificial generosity in each one. Listen, we would shake this community. This community would shake because of the faithfulness and stewardship of this community. And the last thing is this, as we close. You can't serve money and God. That we must cultivate a liturgy 
of generosity. What's a liturgy? Well, a liturgy simply represents a communal response to and participation in something sacred. A liturgy declares something we desire to be true about a community. Listen, we swim in a very powerful liturgy of mammon every day. When you're watching the Cowboys game, right? watch the advertisements. Watch what they're trying to draw you into and hook you around. And see if it's not mammon. See if it's not a, bet, a vision for the good life. Oh, what's, what's the good life? Free of stress. Not a care in the world. Independence. Jesus sets before his people a different way. A different way of living. A different liturgy. And so hear me, liturgies are powerful tools to refute the loud voices and loud liturgies in our life. We sang one, a really powerful one, and I'm not going to, again, sing it. All my wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want. Is that true? I stole this liturgy from a church in New York City, and I want us to read it together. And maybe, um, maybe we need to create a liturgy for our church a liturgy of generosity here because we're so bombarded with the liturgy of mammon. So would you stand with me? Um, I didn't know if I was going to have us read it or I was going to read it to you, but I think there's something powerful when we, when we speak out these liturgies. That's why they're written. Okay? And I know this isn't common for our church. But faith family, do you believe that there is a better way? There's a better way than the way that the world lays out for us. There's a better way than the way of mammon that is so pervasive, that is so powerful, in many ways it's so obvious, but it's so real in the tension of our lives as disciples. True? And so um, here's how we're going to do this. You put up the first line. We're going to read it all together, okay? Not I'm going to read a line, you're going to read No, we're going to read it all together, okay? And it's quite long. But listen to the words and let's make them our prayer. You ready? I'll begin. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, sear those words into our minds and our hearts. Give us a better vision and picture. Disrupt the idol and the God of mammon in our hearts today. Please, Jesus. 
Lord, you said clearly you cannot serve God and mammon. Oh, Lord, forgive us for trying to attempt to do so. And so, Lord, I pray that we would get a renewed, we, 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 through your word today, we would get a renewed sense of the calling and desire you have on us as stewards and not owners. Lord, forgive us for the lie to think that if we just had a little more, we could help a little more. We could do a little more. Lord, you're the one who brings the help. You're the one who gives the grace to do more. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the abundance of your love and your grace and your mercy. That you would give us again a vision of a life in the way of Jesus and not in the way of the world. Father, I thank you for this community that is willing to grapple and wrestle with things like this because we desire to be wholehearted, whole life disciples of Jesus for his glory. Jesus, we ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen and amen.